Hey guys, Blake Calhoun here in another episode of Almost Professional, the podcast about mobile filmmaking, indie filmmaking, DIY filmmaking, really all things filmmaking. And today I'm going to talk with someone about using their smartphone, but in a different capacity, a different way, other than what I normally talk to folks about, and that is filmmaking. Now, these guys still use their phone to tell stories, but they do it in more of an immediate way. Like with a movie, it might take me at least a week, sometimes a month, sometimes a year to make a project. These guys turn stuff around sometimes in the same day, if not all the time, do it that way. So who am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the Mojo guys, mobile journalism. And this is one area of mobile video where you can use your phone to make a living or at least to make income. If you're a full-time journalist, then of course you'd be getting paid, or I hope you would be. But even if you're a freelancer or some sort of a contractor, using your phone to tell stories in this fashion, I think if it's not happening a lot more now, it's going to happen a lot more in the future. Citizen journalists have been doing this for a while, although it seems like most of those people shoot things vertically, which, goodness, please stop doing that. If you take away anything from this episode, that is, don't shoot vertical video unless you're doing it for social media, okay? Please, please, please keep your phone landscape, shoot horizontal. So my guest today is actually someone who works for the BBC. So you really don't get much better than that when it comes to broadcast journalism. If you follow me on Twitter, then you most likely follow him and his name is Mark Settle. And I'm going to read this because I asked him for his title at the BBC and I really hope he doesn't have to have this on any kind of business card. It's a long title. Smartphone journalism trainer for the BBC Academy, the training arm of the BBC. Now that sounds pretty important and I think what he does is, but to you and me, I simply would say he is a mojo trainer. At least that's how I see it referred to pretty often. And if you don't know, in this case, mojo is short for mobile journalism. So let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Mark. Mark, thank you very much for joining me on the show. I've wanted to talk to you for a while. How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. Very nice to be invited on, and I hope that I can uh, meet your expectations if you've wanted me on the show for a while. It's uh, it's quite an honor to be uh, thought of in that way. I really have, and part of the reason is beyond just the obvious, and that is having over 10,000 Twitter followers. Those numbers are impressive. You can buy You can buy them really cheaply these days. That's what I've heard. I haven't tried that, but... But yeah, I know you from Twitter. We haven't actually ever met in person, but on Twitter in particular, the audience that you and I interact with know who you are. However, my YouTube channel is really more geared towards filmmaking, not so much mobile journalism, although a lot of our stuff does overlap. And so I think you have actually watched my channel for a long time. You and I had a conversation about that. You had seen it back when I wasn't the main front person on the show. I had another co-producer that was on camera, and that was Courtney Ware. And we originally did some episodes on just how to shoot good video with an iPhone. Yeah, that, that must have been five, five, six years ago or something. And then it, it went dormant. And I thought, okay, fair enough. Someone else has given up. And then suddenly you reappeared and you've been doing some really good stuff for the last, you know, couple of years or so. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. It really didn't go dormant as much as it's just a side project. And, and it still is a side project, to be honest. I guess we call it a side hustle. But in the beginning, I did it very part time. But I've always loved the idea of the freedom that shooting with your phone gives you. And even back then in 2012, 2013, it was pretty limited, but it was still really cool. 
One of the main reasons, though, that I'm interested in what you do in particular, you guys are some of the only people out there right now actually making a living shooting video with your phone. And so tell me a little bit about your background and for those that don't know who you are and your whole backstory with the BBC and what mobile journalism actually is. But let's start with your background. Yeah, okay, so um, I, I, I was a journalist. It's weird to say that now in the past tense, but I was a journalist for about 15 years. I worked for various parts of the BBC. I've actually only ever worked for the BBC in my entire career, where I started off as a local radio reporter, just for a sort of a small town north of London. I was a presenter for them for a while and a news editor. So I sort of did all the roles there. And after I'd sort of exhausted my time and sort of the same stories came around again and again, I then went to um, regional television. I was a TV reporter for a while. Then I went to national radio and I was a presenter for one of their political programs for there. Then I became a political reporter at, the, uh, at Westminster where all the politics happens in London. And then I went to edit and uh, produce some radio programs for the national broadcaster uh, Radio 4 or Speech and News. And then, um, yeah... That was about sort of 2010 that finally came to an end, which was just when um, the iPhone was beginning to make waves in sort of the, the media industry. Um, and I joined a bit of the BBC that's called, uh, it was called back then the College of Journalism. The idea was that people who'd done things would then show other people how to do those things quite well. I somehow got in even though I hadn't done those things before. So I, I was doing a course that was called um, uh, The Future is Mobile, how the fact that um, Back in 2010, no one knew just what the mobile phone would do to journalism, how it could have a real impact. It wasn't so much how it would ha have an impact on gathering content. It was much more you would see the content on your phone. So back in those days, maybe 10% of people had a smartphone. It's now like 90%. So what that course was looking at was how the smartphone would basically change journalism. But then sort of the idea came that, hey, look, you know, you can also do things with this phone. And I sort of made a few inquiries at the BBC and found out that um, we actually did have a bit of a project working on a Nokia N95. People these days think of N95 in terms of the uh, face mask, but you know, a decade ago, the N95 was a really good smartphone. And we actually had a, a system that worked on that where you could record content and send it in. But the N95 didn't really sort of take off as a very sort of popular smartphone in the way that the iPhone did. And I managed to convince the bosses at the College of Journalism that we needed a course to show BBC journalists how they could use their phone productively. And that, believe it or not, is what I've been doing for the last decade or so. There's still a long way to go, but that's what I've been doing. So are you the person who coined the term mojo? I could not claim that with a, a clear conscience. I really can't. A guy called uh, Iliko Elia from, um, he used to work at Reuters. He did something, I think it might have been with an N95, back in about 2007 or so. It's one of those things, you know, it's not on Wikipedia. You can't go back to any kind of source and say, hey, this was the first time the phrase was coined. But certainly, I've been involved for quite a while, but I certainly wouldn't say that I, I was the very first by, by some stretch. Well, it almost seems as though you were there at the very beginning because... At least here in the States, the reporters here use their phones, but I almost feel like they, they mainly do it when they don't have a crew with them. I mean, kind of like right now during this pandemic, shooting their own stories or their own stand-ups, you know, in their living room. But you guys at the BBC in particular, and I want to talk about this, you guys use mobile technology with traditional stuff. Sometimes you mix and match, and sometimes you do complete mobile-only work. Can you talk about how the mobile aspect has been implemented there? 
I'd love to say it's been implemented really well, but I think it's been implemented piecemeal. It's improving, and you're quite right, the last few months. It's been amazing and amusing. All these people for whom doing something clever with their phone was something that they'd always get round to doing, but they weren't quite here for it today. They've suddenly come to me and a few other colleagues and said, hey, I need to know about how to do this now. So yeah, there's been, been a real sort of sea change in the last couple of months. But, you know, the BBC is a very big organisation and it's not quite the same as um, turning around an oil tanker, but it's not totally dissimilar. So there's a lot of sort of inbuilt structures, a lot of inbuilt knowledge. And so this idea of, hey, look, you've got this thing in your pocket and you could do amazing things with that phone, that's still taking a bit of time to get across to a lot of people, even the bosses. And I still think that there's, there's a lot of a, a viewpoint that, well, look, we are the BBC. We can send crews to the majority of stories, and where possible, we do where we can. But obviously, the number of crews that we have available and the number of stories that could be done, you're just never going to be able to send a broadcast camera and all the paraphernalia that comes with them to every story. Plus, you've also got the cost element. So when you put all that together, then you know there is a very strong argument, which I continue to make, and one day I hope that it will uh, be transformative, that... Anyone who has a smartphone really ought to, ought to understand what they can do with it and how to use it well. Because anyone can press record. One of, one of the lines I use during my training is that anyone can press record. And it's true. And of course, if the story is amazing, even if you've recorded it vertically, yeah, and you've got bad sound, and that's not great either, then if the story is amazing, then yeah, you know, the BBC will run with it. You know, CNN will run with it, whoever. But we've got to aspire to a higher standard. And so there is a certain level of knowledge that I try to get across to people that, you know, it, it won't ever reach the standards that you have on your videos, Blair. I'll be perfectly honest with you, because for most of the crews or the most of these journalists, it's not something they're going to do very often. But when they need to do it, they need to understand how to do it and not do it as badly as you see a member of the public do it. And that's, that, that's where, where the training that I do really comes into it. So are there reporters or crews, is maybe a better way to say that, at the BBC that are mobile only? I mean, for instance, on Twitter, I follow a guy by the name of, I think it's Douglas Shaw. Dougal, Dougal Shaw. Oh, sorry. Yeah. He mainly posts stuff that's all mobile. And I've seen him covering Trump and other world leaders when he was in Europe several months ago. Is he a mobile only or does he go between both? He is a former video journalist. I'm sure that, you know, if he needed to, he could still wield a proper inverted commas broadcast camera very well. But he sort of transmogrified himself from being a VJ into a, an MJ, into a mojo. And so, yeah, for the last sort of three or four years, maybe slightly longer, he has just done things with his phone. But he is still very much a rarity. We have a number of crews who maybe two years ago were involved in a, in a mojo pilot. And the idea was, look, you know, put your cameras down, put your PMW 500s and your FS5s and everything else like that down, and instead do stuff with your phone. And the Mojo Pilot ran for a couple of months. And since then, I'm not saying none of them have done no reports with their phones. They have gone back to their broadcast cameras. I think, I think the, the flexibility and the resources that they can get and the shots they can get and the stories that they are covering mean that they still go back to the comfort of their big devices. There are very, very few people at the BBC who are Mojo only. I need to caveat though, Blake, by saying that the BBC is an extraordinarily large organisation. There are about 20,000 people at the BBC, 
And there may well be someone at BBC Wales or BBC Scotland or BBC Northern Ireland that I just don't have any contact with who regularly does stuff with their phone. If they do, I apologise, but please make yourself known to me so I can share your joys with other people. But yeah, broadly speaking, it's still a niche is probably too small, but it's certainly not mainstream. And so then who I was just talking about, Shaw, is he a freelancer then? Does he pick up stories and then maybe sell it back to the BBC or does he actually work for the BBC? No, no, he's very much a full-time employee. He used to work for oh, a business okay. unit. He, uh, I think he works for another part now called uh, World Hacks. The idea is um, something called constructive journalism, where rather than reporting on death and disaster and destruction, it's very much, there's a problem, here's a solution, and here are the people who are implementing this solution. So he's been doing a lot of sort of stories like that. Now, they aren't, shall we say, the, the, the top stories. and never going to be the stories that run first on the bulletin. A lot of them have softer tones to them, uh, mainly because they're all about solutions rather than the, you know, the nastier side of news. But maybe that is where, certainly at the BBC, the smartphone lends itself more. So rather than every scenario, it's something that can lend itself to a bit more planning, a bit more structure, a bit more, okay, can we just do that shot again because I want to get it better? When obviously in news, you don't really get that second chance. So I, th I think that's where mobile is still uh, working well for those stories that aren't going to lead the bulletin, but are certainly going to be down it or obviously on social media as well. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, because again, I keep bringing him up because I follow him on Twitter and I think you retweet some of his stuff too. It's interesting because I've seen some of his stuff that is for social media, I'm assuming, but also then goes broadcast. And so that's, that's where some of this thinking is coming from referring to him. But I've also seen you post stuff that plays into what you were talking about earlier about using broadcast cameras, which I know they obviously do. And this may have been six months ago, maybe longer. You posted something showing a report that was on the nightly news, I guess. And they did two different angles. And one of them was a smartphone and one of them was a big broadcast camera. Are you seeing more of that kind of thing happening? Yeah, that's, that's one of the main use cases. I know it sounds terrible that, hey, we're using the, the phone only as a second camera. But we've got to be realistic about this. The number of stories where even the BBC can afford to send two cameras or three cameras, they're just really small. They've really got to be presidents, prime ministers, or you know, chief executives of multi-billion corporations, you know, that kind of level. So that's where the smartphone comes into its own, because when you can have the main camera on your interviewee and the iPhone on the reporter for the reverses, that gives you that flexibility in the shot that just means that the piece can be edited so more, uh, much more easily, that it can look so much better. It's almost more beneficial to the audience because rather than having to record what certainly in TV we call the noddies or the reverses, where you see the reporter nodding their head or you see the right. reporter asking their questions, if you record those at the time that they are asked, they look much more genuine. You can see the challenges. When I was a TV reporter, if you then at the end of the interview had to say to your guest, look, would you mind if we hang on for 10 minutes? I just need to get myself filmed asking questions I asked you, and then you drop them in. They never look good. You can always tell what they are. They're just really badly done. So if you can use the iPhone as the second camera, it just speeds things up. It gives that flexibility. And I think for a lot of camera crews, they think, well, look, I can't set up two cameras. I can't carry two big tripods. But if I put the main camera up and then put the iPhone on a small tripod to get those reverses or the wide shots or whatever, it just means everything is so much quicker and more flexible. And I think that's where it's really having an impact, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. On my YouTube channel, I do that all the time, actually. I'll set up my main shot, like a mirrorless camera. Sony a6400 is one I use quite a bit. 
and then I'll set up my iPhone as the second shot. Now, sometimes though, I do use my iPhone as the main camera. I mean, just because my channel is about iPhones and iPhone filmmaking, I don't always use that as my main camera, but they do come in really handy as a second angle for sure. And even sometimes I'll do two and three angles. Instead of throwing up like a GoPro type camera, an action camera, I might put up an iPhone and especially now with the iPhone 11 Pro with the ultra wide lens. Yeah. What, one of the things we do find though is that certainly people who can see well what pictures look like, whether, you know, if for them, from their involvement in television or production or whatever, you'll get the criticism from them of all oh, the uh, color balance didn't match or that picture looked a bit soft by comparison or you've not got the depth of field in the reverse shot that you had on the main camera. But yeah, you've got to hold your hands up sometimes and say, well, look, you're not going to get the same kind of quality out of an iPhone that you'd get out of a, you know, I keep saying Sony PMW 500, but that's one of the main broadcast camera cameras. That's about, what, 15 or 20,000 pounds, so, you know, many thousand dollars plus a lens on top for almost the same money. And so unsurprisingly, that is going to look a lot better. And, you know, yes, it'd be lovely to have the time to properly color grade and match and balance everything perfectly. But there are occasions when the speed that things have to be done in news do not lend themselves to the long form flexibility that you get putting together a big uh, production. But yeah, you get the criticism. But I think it always comes down to, let's be honest, the 0.1% or 0.01% who might criticize are going to be massively outweighed by definition by the audience who are just going to sit there and watch it and not even think about things like color balance and depth of field and everything like that. They're going to think, am I learning stuff? Is it telling me something new? And, you know, is it a good story? And frankly, you know, if the iPhone can contribute to that, which it does to a degree, then that's really the bottom line. Yeah, and really the only people criticizing are probably other camera guys or editors. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can be one of those too, so don't get me wrong. Yeah, and they're a very critical bunch, you know, and I, yeah, you can't sort of um, criticize their criticism because fair enough, you know, they, they know what they, they can see and they, they, they can pick it up very easily. But, you know, they, they've got to realize that, you know, the, the, the logistics of getting two broadcast cameras to every story are just not practical. But when the even the camera crew themselves have an iPhone in their pocket, and then the reporter has an iPhone in their pocket, and then even you know the guest has an iPhone or, or, or an Android phone, before you know it, you can have a three, four camera shoot, and it's just so much better. I agree completely. And one little side note, my wife was a news producer for years. She recently changed careers, though. I mean, the news business is a tough business. Uh, she worked in local news, not network news, but it's just changing. And Budgets are cut and all that kind of thing. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It's just a lot different than it used to be, I think. But I always used to say that I would love seeing a story where the shots actually match the, the color, the white balance. Because oftentimes, just as you said, they don't spend the time to color correct because they're in a hurry. Yeah. They're producing a 30-minute newscast every day. And yeah, you have a lot of people working, but the editors have to tell the story. And the, the visuals, while a lot of those news shooters are great, photographers. I mean, the images are excellent, but they don't always get the white balance right and that kind of thing. However, in saying all that, you can actually match the iPhone footage with bigger broadcast cameras. I've done it. I've shot with red cameras, you know, big cinema cameras and match the iPhone remarkably well. But to your point, depending on what you're trying to do, I mean, depth of field obviously is tougher to match. You can't really match it unless you're using DOF adapters, and that's really a whole nother animal. Otherwise, that kind of thing is really tough to match for sure. 
And just like you said, it really can be apples and oranges when you get down to comparing those two kind of cameras. But it is amazing today what you can do. And that kind of segues into my next topic. When you are doing training, you are, I guess, called a mojo trainer. Is that what you are mainly training your students to do? It's like, hey, you've got this phone in your pocket. If you just pull the camera out and start shooting video, it's going to look like your kid's birthday party, which is great for home movies, but not great for a news story, especially for the BBC. So are you mainly teaching them how to lock the white balance, the focus, set the audio levels, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's exactly that. You know, anyone can press record and it's very easy for anyone to do that. Everyone can do that. But that is not going to be of a sufficient standard that the BBC would aspire to because, you know, people look to us hopefully for decent content. So, yeah, you know, we we actually have our own app, uh, which we've designed and built to do the things that we need to do for our uh, broadcast. So over there in the States, you're using NTSC, 30 frames per second, 60 frames per second. We need... The PAL system, which most of the rest of the world has, but not uh, the US and Canada, a few other places. Now, now hold on. Let me, let me stop you for one second. I only shoot 24p, okay? Ah. But I'm not, I'm not the news. Yeah. Sorry, I had to get that in. No, 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 fair <laughs> enough. It's, it's near enough to 25, Blake. I'll let you off. Um, so yeah, so, so we need 25 or 50. So we, yeah, we get that point across. We get the point across about, please record it landscape rather than vertical. Uh, then we talk about sound and we talk about framing. We talk about shot sizes and we talk about, you know, continuity. But in all honesty, our journalists get a day off the rotor. And in the one day off the rotor, they have to learn about our own app, what it can do, what it can't do, third-party apps, audio, video, and photos, because the app can send all of those, accessories that can make a difference, because if you just use your phone, you can struggle, whereas if you have a few accessories, how that can make a difference, but also how to use just the phone, because you will always have your phone on you. And then also some of the sort of the not tangential, but some of the useful things for journalists. Like, for example, there are a couple of great apps that have come out recently that let you do um, transcriptions. So if you've got an interview that you've recorded, you can then take that audio and put it into an app. And before you know it, you've got a, a text transcription of that audio. And when I show journalists that that's possible on their phone, they just look at me saying, oh my word, this will save me so much time. But unfortunately, the managers don't want to give them more than a day off the rotor. So For a lot of them, it's merely getting across to them the absolute basics. As you say, you know, locking the focus, thinking about the exposure, getting the very, very basics correct enough that when they need to do it for real, they don't give footage that looks like anyone could have filmed it. So the BBC app, can you actually record video with that or is it more for media management? No, it does both. Um, It records video at uh, 50 frames per second. You can set the focus and tweak the exposure and put a rule of thirds grid on the screen and see the audio levels. And that's about it. Because the the, the concept really is that it's been reduced to the lowest common denominator. And, you know, a lot of journalists are, or how do I put this tactfully? Video is not their forte. You know, they're journalists, but, you know, normally they have a crew doing it for them. So for them... If you started to bring in all the aspects of Filmic Pro or Mavis or um, Pro Camera into, their, uh, into this app, it would just be overwhelming. So it's, it's done simply enough for them to mostly press record and do one or two settings and they're good to go. It also, though, does work as a media transfer app as well. So if you've recorded in Filmic Pro, you can bring the content into our app and then it just sends it into our broadcast systems. But for the vast majority, they just keep it simple. They record with the, it's called PNG, Portable News Gathering. 
You can't get it on the App Store. We've got our own little App Store at the BBC. Download it from that, and then you can record in that and then send that in. Same with the audio side of it. We need it recorded at a WAV format rather than MP3 um, or M4A. It also lets you monitor the audio. Again, that's something you can't do on the iPhone app. If you're using the standard iPhone camera, you can't plug in headphones and hear the audio, which may not matter to most people. But for anyone who's sort of done any journalism, being able to hear yourself or hear the person you're recording is really important to find out are they popping or are they off mic or are they are there distortions. We have adapted the app so that you can monitor the audio while you're recording. So we've tweaked it for journalists to use, but at the same time, try to keep it really simple. Well, regarding the training you do, what would you say is the most common mistake these guys do? Well, let me ask you a question before that, actually. Are these people, are they experienced already in journalism or are these brand new, like college age kids or is it a mix of both? No, it, it, it's journalists at the BBC. I mean, obviously, you know, it could be someone who's new to the BBC, but by and large, they're journalists who've been with a corporation for you know several years, sometimes even a decade or so. And whether it's their own get up and go that's got them on the course or the appraisal with the boss has said, look, you've got to go and do it, or the boss has said, you've really got to go and do it. And they come on the course and hopefully at the end of it, you know, the scales have fallen from their eyes and realize that the thing they have in their pocket is actually really quite useful. You know, as the cliche goes, if you're just using an, a smartphone to make phone calls and send text messages, it's a waste of everybody's money. And so we've got to get more and more people to understand how, how to use it properly. So then what would be the most common mistake you see these guys who already know how to produce a news story, but when it comes to using their phone, I'm, I'm just really curious, is it shooting vertical, which I know you absolutely can't stand, or what would it be? I think the biggest mistake that um, most of them make is an underappreciation of audio on video that they think, oh, look, you know, if I've got the pictures to look good, that's, that's, that's the battle over. That's the battle won, surely. And yeah, you know, if you're just shooting a, a GV, a general view of a location, or you just need some wallpaper shots, then, you know, the sound isn't so crucial. But if you're interviewing someone and you haven't got the distance right between you and them, or the location that you're at means that the audio you're recording is going to be really affected, then recording just with a phone is not going to give you broadcast standard audio. If it's very windy, it's not going to give you broadcast standard audio. You might have good pictures, but the audio is really still a challenge. And so, yeah, I think a lot of them can sort of understand pictures. I mean, you know, there's a lot to learn, but I think they take the picture side as being the vast majority of the battle without appreciating at all that there's another very important side to it. And quite often the audio is almost as important, if not more important than the pictures. And so we spend a fair bit of time getting them to understand firstly what the iPhone or what the smartphone camera uh, or microphone could do on its own, because obviously you'll always have the microphone on the phone itself. And then what are the tricks you can do to improve the audio just on the phone? And then what you can do with you know, the headphones, the microphone you have on the headphones, and then all the different things about external microphones, because you know there are so many ways to improve the audio. And it, it often, often comes down to budget and resources. But for the sake of you know, 10, 15 bucks, you can get yourself a microphone, which will just really improve the quality of the audio. So that's, that's one of the things where, yeah, I think, I think that the vast majority of journalists, whether they work in radio or television, think, yeah, I'll, I'll get the pictures right, and they don't think about the audio. So as part of your job to recommend gear and apps, because I know on Twitter anyway, you always seem to find really interesting 
apps out there that that I haven't even heard of, and I try to follow this stuff pretty closely. Do you do that because you're curious, just yourself, or are you trying to help with the training, or maybe both? I've become a bit of obsessed, and it's actually probably not a good thing. I remember someone saying a couple of years ago, find half a dozen apps and get really good at them, rather than I've gone to the other end of the spectrum. As you say, I, I, I enjoy finding new apps and finding out what they can do, but on occasions, people come to me across the BBC and say, hey, is there an app that can do X, Y, and Z? And if I'm able to say, yeah, there is one, I feel sort of quite good about that. Rather than saying, well, you can probably do it in LumaFusion. It's probably a bit complex, but here's how you might be able to do it. You know, it's an amazing app and do so many things. But there are specific, you know, one-trick ponies that do a particular job very, very well. So, yeah, I, I like to have sort of a good all-encompassing range. I have a sort of a very thin knowledge about an awful lot of apps rather than a very deep knowledge about a couple of apps. Although I do know someone who does a very good training course online available about a couple of those apps. So, yeah, they're available as well. But Equally, in terms of equipment, there's sort of a little kit bag that we've put together for our journalists, the idea being that you uh, put that bag in the bottom of your rucksack or whatever. You don't need to use it all the time, but if you need to use it, you've got it. And it's small enough. It's like sort of a a pencil case or a makeup bag. It's got a, a light. It's got a microphone. It's got a very, very small tripod. And the idea is that if you need it, you've got it. If you lose it, it's not the end of the world because it's only about sort of 50 bucks. It's not the best equipment, but it does a good job. And then I show all the different range of things. I've got not just a bag, I've got a suitcase now full of equipment because, you know, different budgets and different um, use cases mean that, you know, there'll be different things that are going to be appropriate for different people. So you've mentioned budget a couple of times. And since these are BBC employees, does the BBC not pay for this gear? Or depending on what they want, they have to pay for it themselves kind of thing? Yeah, again, you know, being a very large organization, I, I'm not going to be able to give you the, the answer that applies to every bit of the BBC. There, there, there is a unit called the um, Mobile Journalism and Innovation Unit. So it's not just Mojo. It's also things like um, Macs and drones and 360 cameras and gimbals and stuff like that. And they put together this little sort of kit bag. And so for the um, journalists based in London at sort of New Broadcasting House, which is the headquarters of the BBC, those who are eligible can go to this MJI unit and get given this little kit bag. But other parts of the BBC, then, you know, they have their own way of doing things. A lot of people do buy their own equipment because, you know, to a degree, this isn't considered a core part of many reporters' jobs. I mean, yeah, there are some who will be issued with equipment, but mostly I get people saying to me, look, you know, I need to get a microphone. I'm not going to spend 100 quid, 100 bucks. Can you recommend one for 15 or 20? Because that's the kind of sort of price point that people probably don't mind too much spending their own money. Once you start going to three figures, it can begin to make a bit of a dent in the old bank balance. Yeah, and I remember seeing you talk about how people will, and I think you have a saying that goes along with this, but people will cringe at the idea of paying for an app. And I think maybe you talked about Luma Fusion. It's a 20, it's a $20, 20 US dollar app. And people are like, wow, I can't believe you would actually spend that much money on an app. But then you talk about how you spend $5 or more on a cup of coffee. But people are very resistant, I guess, spending money on apps because they're so used to getting stuff for free, I guess. Yeah. I, I, I can't conceive of a cup of coffee costing five bucks. What, what do you put in your coffee, Blake? Well, I mean, price? Starbucks. I mean, Starbucks can be more than that. Come on. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you're quite right. I, yeah, I, do, I do this little sort of trick at, um, at one point during my training course where I sort of um, say to people, okay. Um, who had a coffee on the way to work today? And, you know, normally out of the half dozen or so, you know, three, four, sometimes all of them. And then I say, okay, um, when did any of you last buy an app? 
and they look at me blankly as if I've asked them, you know, when did they last kiss a goat? And it's that psycho- psychology that the coffee, they don't mind spending a couple of bucks a day, sometimes even several times a day. Yet a smartphone app, which will last them a lot longer and will do much more for them professionally, they're not going to spend three bucks a month on an app. However, yeah, when you say to someone, look, this one's 20 bucks, this one's 30 bucks, and before you know it, it's 100 bucks, that can become a real problem. And of course, the growth now of um, subscription apps, that's a real challenge. More and more apps have moved to the model of it's five, pound, five bucks a month for this and five bucks a month for that. And before you know it, it's 15, 20, 25 bucks a month. And that does mount up over the course of a year. But undeniably, if you're only trying to use the apps that came with your phone or free apps, you're not going to be as creative. You're not going to be as controlled. You're not going to be as clever as if you spend a bit of money. Where you draw the line, that's a, a personal thing. But yeah, you know, if you want to do creative, constructive, and clever journalism with your smartphone, you probably are going to look at maybe 50 bucks, 60 bucks at one-off purchase for a handful of apps. And I don't think a professional, whether it's a journalist or broadcaster or whoever, I don't think 50 or 60 bucks is the kind of figure that they ought to be too worried about if it's, you know, to improve their career. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I think it's funny. I run into that I run into that too on my YouTube channel where I recommend an app and I only recommend stuff that I actually like and that I actually use, but then people get upset about, I don't know, an in-app purchase or that kind of thing. But most of the apps I use, I can't think of any subscription apps I use because I do tend to not like those that much, depending on what it is, I guess. And I'm glad that like Filmic Pro and LumaFusion are a one-time fee. Although they do have some in-app purchases that are kind of upgrades, but the basic apps are a one-time fee. Now, do you guys in your training, we've talked a lot about shooting video with iPhones. Do you guys talk about post-production at all? Only in the very, very limited sense of the app that we provide called PNG. That can only do topping and tailing. Now, is that a phrase that you're familiar with or do you think the audience is familiar with? Or if I explain the concept, you'll tell me what you call it. Uh, no. Is that sort of like a rough cut? Um, I'll explain it and then you can tell me what you call it. So basically, let's say you've got um, uh, an interview with someone and you can sort of trim off the beginning and trim off the end, or you can isolate a section and then you can make a new clip of that. And that's all, all you can do. You can't do any internal editing. You can't do any mixing. You can't do any moving around. You can't do any crossfade. You can't do any layering. It's literally making a clip. So topping and tailing the interview. So you've just got the bit you need rather than the whole thing. Oh, okay. Well, that just sounds like the native iPhone app to me, to be honest. Yeah, exa- yeah, it is. Yeah, and that's all that our, our app can do. And to be honest, because the BBC does not yet really require our journalists to make a fully mixed package on their phone by and large, that's all that we really show them how to do. There are apps that do much more than that. And for those who are interested, I do sort of spend a bit more time uh, on, a, on a secondary course saying that these are these other apps that can do more productive things. But the vast majority of people, it's, look, let, let's record the content. Let's get it to look good. Let's get it to sound good. Let's make it a bit shorter if necessary, because obviously a shorter video takes less time to send in. And then let's send it in. For, for a few of them, then there are the other apps that do a lot more and a lot clever, much more clever. And in fact, I, I tweeted something just recently where it was all filmed in um, Filmic Pro. It was then sent via airdrop to an iPad Pro. It was then edited in LumaFusion. 
And then it still had to be sort of slightly treated in the BBC format of text and subtitles had to be put on it. But otherwise, that was a rarity, all done with mobile apps. But it's still something which is, it's certainly not prevalent, not common. So in that case, it would be more for one man band kind of thing. In other words, I know a lot of people that work in news and uh, even in small markets, you go out and even if you're the reporter and you shoot your own stuff, you typically don't edit it necessarily unless you're out in a remote location. You might still have an editor that does that for you. Or if you do edit it like a rough cut, you still have an editor that does the polishing. Would that still be the case with mobile at the BBC or how does it work there? Yeah, it, it's, it's still much more that, you know, the, the majority, the vast majority, again, with the caveat of, you know, that there are, that the BBC is very big and there may be other people doing different things. But from what I'm aware of, the vast majority is getting hold of the content, either transferring it on location to uh, a Mac and editing on the Mac there with Final Cut Pro or Premiere, or it's sending it back directly from location to the newsroom. And then someone else in the newsroom then edits together the package, again, Final Cut Pro or Premiere. It's very, very rare that anyone's doing it on their phone. I mean, there are, there are a few who will, um, you know, use apps like Video Leap or um, obviously Luma Fusion to put a few clips together to make a, a short oeuvre. Again, I hope that's a term that it's maybe a news term. I don't know. That, that's called out of vision. So the idea is you see the newscaster, the presenter um, speaking, and then they float pictures on top. And so there's no there's no sync, there's no audio. It's just literally, you know, pictures. And so you can cut a very quick oeuvre using a couple of apps like that. But in terms of actually making a fully mixed package with, you know, cutaways and mixed track and everything else like that, it's still something which is a, a very, very minority pursuit of the BBC. You guys still call it B-roll over there, right? Yeah, yeah, A-roll and B-roll. But, but there aren't many apps that um, can do that successfully. You know, LumaFusion is one of them, KineMaster as well. But yeah, it's, it's, it's still something which, again, very, very few journalists would need to do it, really, because it's not really their job. It's, you know, their job is to do the journalism, of which the mobile is a constructive part, but it's not the majority part of what their role is. Yeah, I just, now with the iPad Pro, you know, I work more in the filmmaking side, commercials, indie film, corporate video, and I'm finding more and more people, including myself, we, uh, we use all the traditional tools, but I'm starting to, as I mentioned earlier, starting to use my phone more and more as a B camera and in some cases an A camera. But also I'm starting to do a lot of editing on my iPad. And recently LumaFusion created or they, they added a feature, I guess, that you can now export an XML. That's getting into the technical weeds a little bit. But you can start a project in LumaFusion and then take it to Final Cut Pro or Premiere or DaVinci Resolve to finish. And so. I wonder if that would cross over into the news, but I guess it probably wouldn't because you guys are turning stuff around so quickly normally. The majority of, of crews who are filming on their phone are still turning it around using Final Cut Pro because you know, they, they've got MacBook, MacBook Airs, everything like that. So That's what they're used to, I'm sure, as well. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But also, I, I need to sort of make things clear about the BBC. You know, when, when you talk about iPad Pros, I recent, recently did a training course with a um, part of the BBC where out of the seven people who turned up, three of them were using an iPhone 5S. Oh, wow. Exactly, yeah. That, that's really creaking around the edges. You know, equally, you say, wow, but you know, what's his name? Um, did, did the uh, Tangerine film, 
on a yeah, five Sean, S. Yeah, Sean Baker. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that well, look, I just meant as compared to today. I mean, oh, that was great, course, you know, yeah. five years ago. Yeah, but it's it still looks good, I'm sure, because it was very heavily treated in post. Right. But, you know, unfortunately, the, the resources of many, many bits of the BBC still mean that people are, are just using an iPhone 5S. And so, yeah, you know, the idea that they'll also have a, an iPad Pro to transfer the content to and edit on a, on a larger screen, that's only going to be for a very, very select few. Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. You started out as a journalist, but were you a producer as well, or were you mainly just writing stories? No, I, I was sort of, um, believe it or not, with, with, with a face like mine, I, I was sort of an on-camera reporter. Oh, okay. And yeah, you know, but this... That, yeah. This was in the day of tape, you know. I, I um, uh, yeah, it, it was shot on film and then edited in uh, in studios uh, back uh, at base and then cut. And I remember there were times when the the program went out at half past six and we'd cut our piece at twenty. Uh, it was ready at twenty five past six. We didn't even have time to run to the gallery to play it. We had to play it out live from the um, edit suite, and you know that was pressurized compared to the kind of work that I do these days in terms of training. Because yeah, you know, by comparison, that's uh, that, that 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 got the heart racing. Yeah, that reminds me of that James L. Brooks movie, Broadcast News. I I, re- I love that movie. My wife said that a lot of that can actually be true. I'm not sure if you've seen that or not. What I'm getting at here is you started out in front of the camera, uh, storytelling, but then you say about ten years ago you segued into being this trainer, and so you're talking a lot of tech now. But sometimes when you and I chat on Twitter, you always seem to defer to me or someone like. Rich Lackey or even Chris Cohen at Filmic Pro. I mean, those guys are really technical. So have you morphed into this tech guy or do you even consider yourself technically minded? I suppose I'm going to fall back on that phrase of, you know, in, in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. You know, there, there is so much that people don't know they don't know that when I wow them with my knowledge, they're going, whoa, I never knew that I didn't know so much. But when I sort of fess up to them that, you know, I'm picking up stuff from you, from Rich, from Chris Cohen, from, you know, loads of other people, I've still got so much knowledge to get my head around, but I'm able to sort of impart it, I hope, in a training way that gets across to them what they need to know. Plus also, because of my background in journalism, admittedly a decade or so ago, I still have some understanding of the kind of pressures and the kind of um, demands that they work under. So I'm sort of both sides of the fence where, you know, if you're only a cinematographer, you wouldn't really understand the journalism part of things. If you're only a journalist, you don't really understand the, the cinematography part. Right. And I'm sort of on both sides of the line. You, you could argue it that I'm, you know, I'm a, a jack of all trades and a master of none, but equally, I think it's sort of, it, it's a balance that I, a balance I'm quite happy with. Do you think there's a difference between mobile journalism and traditional TV journalism? I mean, you know, you could, again, fall back onto cliche of, you know, it's the story that matters. It's not the, uh, device that you're filming the story on that matters. But undeniably, there are certain things that a smartphone can do that a broadcast camera can't. And there are certain things that a broadcast camera can do that a smartphone can't. And it's often sort of horses for courses. But ultimately, you can't get away from the fact that only a very few people would know how to get the best out of a broadcast camera. And even would they have that broadcast camera with them all the time? Whereas 95% of journalists I did find one recently who came on my training course saying, can I borrow a phone? I don't have a smartphone. I was really surprised about that. But 95 to 99% of journalists have a smartphone with them. And so they need to understand better what they can do with it, rather than saying to the 2% of BBC employees who know how to use a broadcast camera, hey, why don't you become a journalist as well? 
So do you think using smartphones and news in particular is for budgetary reasons? Or is it more for convenience and because it democratizes the process? Because as you said earlier, everybody already has a phone with them. I mean, undeniably, the budget comes into it. You know, you can't take away the fact that the cost of a broadcast camera plus the lenses, plus all the other paraphernalia with it, you know, you're probably talking, what, 30,000, 40,000? Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Whereas a phone, you know, even an iPhone, what, you know, 10X, that's going to be, what, seven, eight hundred bucks. Doesn't have to be the very newest to still be useful. And, you know, a few bit of kit, maybe another hundred or so on top. You're looking at, you know, a 20th or a 30th of the price. Is it a 20th or the 30th of the quality? Probably not. So undeniably, the, the, the budget factor comes into play. Plus also, it's the, all the other things that it can do. Whereas, you know, the broadcast camera is a very good, one trick pony sounds very unfair, but, you know, it, it's a very good device to do one thing. Whereas the smartphone can do so many things. You know, our, our reporters go live with them. They do radio with them. They obviously can write their reports with them. So yeah, you know, for a fraction of the cost, you can get a multiple of the options out of it. So yeah, you really, really, the budget is an important part. Yeah, and phones are a Swiss army knife. I think that's kind of what you're saying. And especially right now with the pandemic, it is interesting to see, at least here in the States, and I assume it's the same over there, the big network news people or the late night hosts, they're all shooting from their house. They're all using their phone, or at least most of them are. I can tell some of them have a crew there, or at least a partial crew. But the good news is they either saw your training or watched some of my videos on YouTube because most of them are at least locking their exposure. But have, have, they, have they got better with the sound? I watched one that um, Seth Meyers did. Admittedly, it was at the very start of things where he was doing um, his, his late night program from his hall or his um, stairwell or something. And, you know, as ever, the picture looked great, but the sound was really terrible. And you're thinking, you know, surely someone at whichever network he's on could have said to him in advance, look, you got your iPhone, but yeah, what about a microphone? Something. But, you know, he, he, he looked perfectly fine, but I just sat there watching it, cringing of how bad the sound was. And I just thought, this isn't professional. So yeah, I don't know whether they've improved that since the last couple of, last couple of weeks or so. Yeah, I think it depends on the show. I've, I've seen the same thing, but it is funny. I guess in a weird way, I'm in a bubble, and I guess you are too, on how to use smartphones. Because I'm always surprised when I encounter people on YouTube and even in real life, because I do meet people in real life sometimes. It's amazing to me that people don't realize what these devices can actually do. And I really think for what you do in particular, the news business, and as I said at the top of this podcast, that's one area where you can actually make a living with your device. Not necessarily full time, like you've been saying, but I'm sure there's some freelancers out there that maybe maybe do stories that, well, I think there are. I don't know these guys, but I follow them on Twitter. There's an Italian guy, a journalist. I'm blanking out on his name right now. I think he was part of the Filmic Pro Summit recently. He does a lot of war reporting. Oh, uh, Nico, Nico Pero. Yeah, yeah. He goes into different conflict areas. Yeah. And that's another thing with news in particular. But even doing what I do with filmmaking, it's great to be a little more incognito with your gear. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I and so I just find that to be a really beneficial thing. And I just really think smartphones fit in particular what you do very well. And really even for citizen journalism. Yeah, I mean, obviously, 
you turn up to many stories with a broadcast camera and you get your tripod out and you fix your light on the top and before you know it, the uh, security guards, with a gun or not, are hurriedly coming towards you. You know, airports, a classic use case where, you know, yeah, strictly speaking, you really ought to ring up and ask for permission. But if you walk in, inverted commas, as a member of the public, just with your phone, you can get that footage for whatever the story is and be out of there before anyone realises that you've been filming for news production. But the quality may not be as good, but the story may need the film shot at all. Whereas if you did a broadcast camera shoot, you wouldn't get the footage. So yeah, there's always that trade-off. And that's where you know the phone could just do so many things that a broadcast camera might be able to do, but on occasions might not. And another classic example is, is attaching um, an external microphone. You, if you stand there like a reporter with a, a handheld reporter microphone with a, a, a windshield on it of your network, then again, that is going to advertise to everyone that you are doing journalism. If you just hold your phone as if you're on a phone call and you record your report about what's happening, you just blend in. And that's just one of the most amazing things about this device. It just does open up the possibilities that previously would have been really, really hard for journalists. I agree completely. And that's, uh, that's one thing that I really do love about smartphones. Let me ask you this, getting ready to wrap up here. What advice would you give to someone wanting to pursue, I mean, I was going to say mobile journalism, but journalism in general today in the world that we live in, just the, the high-tech world we live in, maybe from a technological perspective, but just in general too. And it could cater towards more mobile journalism, but it sounds like right now the worlds are still not mixed together completely. Without sounding like an old man, the, the students of today, or the journalists of the future, do have a massive advantage compared to someone of my generation. If I wanted to do journalism, and I did want to do journalism, I didn't have the kit beyond a sort of a, a notebook and a pen and an, an inquiring mind. Whereas the journalists of tomorrow already have with them the item that they are probably going to be required to, if not to use every day, to at least know how to use if they need to. And so it would be massively remiss of anyone thinking of getting into journalism in the future not to understand what their phone can do, what the phone can't do, and how to use it. Now, it often can go to the other extreme, where people come to the BBC already knowing loads about their phone, but they've been doing it for Instagram, or they've been doing it for Snapchat. And so you've almost sort of got to take their knowledge and sort of re-educate them, because all the things they've learned how to do are fine for Snapchat and Instagram, but not so good for broadcasting. But it is such an advantage for young people today that they have with them something that lets them practice all the time the thing that is going to be so beneficial to them in the future. You know, hiring a, a 35mm camera or an 8mm camera or something like that 30 years ago would have been the only way you could have practiced that. Okay, you might have had a sort of a, a small Kodak camera to get across still photography. And of course, that's a very good basis to understand film journalism and and uh, filming. But the fact that you've got the device with you already, you can just, you know, be so far ahead of the curve compared to someone 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I think that's actually very true. And you hear the phrase digital native thrown around a lot. And I think that plays in here with anyone under the age of really, I don't know, 40, probably, but, but for sure, anyone under the age of 30, they've all just grown up with technology, and they'll have a head start. And that's probably one of the reasons, and I'm going to put words in your mouth, this is obviously just an assumption, 
the BBC and big companies like that are slow to change because people are just set in their ways. A lot of people have been doing it the old way for 20, 30 or whatever years. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm sure that you're, you're spot on. The, the generation who, have, who, who didn't grow up with smartphones are the ones who are now employed as the senior correspondents and the senior reporters and the senior producers for whom getting their heads around what a smartphone can do, and of course there are some who get it perfectly, but a lot of them, they are very set in their ways. They want the camera crew to do the hard stuff where they think the uh, important big thoughts. But yeah, the, the generation who are coming up behind them, the digital natives of the 25 and 30-year-olds who, who are joining the BBC now for whom the smartphone is, is their life, yeah, it's, it's going to be much easier for them to provide the material that the BBC is going to need and other news organizations as well. Last question, what is your favorite part or the favorite thing that you see related to what you do in mobile journalism and mojo training? I think the favorite thing I get during training is when you see a light bulb going off in people's head of, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about doing that before. I didn't know that I could do that before and now I'm going to do it. One of the things I do towards the end of the, end of the course is I say to people, okay, from what you've learned today, what might you do differently? And that's really sort of inspiring for me and maybe empowering for them, If again, going into cliche there. But when you hear them say, I didn't know I could do this. I now know I can. I now know that I will. It just sort of makes everything worthwhile because, you know, it, it's quite a hard grind getting them to come on the course and getting through the course of the day, the things they need to understand. But by the end of it, when they can appreciate just what they are now capable of doing, that's just sort of the most sort of fulfilling part. Equally, though, the other side of the coin is how many of them walk out of the training room and never do it again. Because, you know, the training course is maybe a bit of a box ticking exercise for them. And they, you know, can go back to the boss and say, well, I've done the course. I've done the course and I'm now sort of fully trained. But unless they actually do anything with it. So that's the other side that people need to practice. That is all very well having a training course or watching videos online or everything. And obviously, in this current age where you're not allowed to go very far from your own home, it's quite a challenge. But, you know, get your phone out and record things and take photographs and practice locking the white balance and everything that means that when you need to do it for real in the future, you're not wondering, what does that button do again? I can't remember because I had the training course, but I haven't done it since. Because if you do that, you're going to miss the moment or you're going to get a bad shot. If you learn what to do and it becomes second nature, then that's going to be beneficial all round. Yeah, and especially if they don't shoot vertical video. Oh, don't even open that can of worms. Because trouble is now, <laughs> it's no longer as wrong as it used to be. My, my, again, another cliche, I say, well, you know, the landscape has changed. It's no longer landscape only. It's landscape predominant. I'd much rather you did record landscape, but there are certain outlets for whom it's not the end of the world. If you want to cut that bit out, Blake, I would totally be happy. Uh, that's funny. That's funny because the landscape has changed and it really has because of social media. Yeah. I always, uh, I always use that as a caveat, but I do preach, hold your phone horizontal. I really do. Yeah, and, and it, it, that is still the uh, way of doing it. If our, our app has an arrow on it where it's sort of, when you open up the camera, it has a big arrow. That if you're holding it portrait, the arrow says pretty much a nudge to turn it landscape. In the past, you could not start recording while the phone was in portrait. But they oh, have wow. changed that. Wow. Exactly. It literally, <laughs> the, the red record button was um, grayed out. You could not record if you're holding your phone vertically. You still get the nudge to turn it landscape, but they've sort of recognized, again, the landscape has changed, that if you really, really insist on recording vertically, you can. We'd rather you didn't, but you can. 
I think I'm going to mention that to uh, Chris Cohen over at Filmic Pro to see if they can add that feature in. Yeah. To where it won't record in portrait. That could be a good feature request. I like that. <laughs> that would be a lovely one. That would make a lot of people very happy. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really like this insight from a different side of what we all do, or at least from what I do. Most of the things I do, of course, are filmmaking related. But what we do overlaps, especially from a storytelling perspective and the tools we use. But getting your perspective from a journalism point of view, and especially from a person who works at a place like the BBC, this has been great. Well, it's been a pleasure. And particularly enjoyed the fact you've called it uh, the BBC all the way along rather than just BBC. Because, yeah, it is, it is the BBC. Sort of like when you're in L.A., you have to call the freeways V, like V405. Right. All right. Well, thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed my chat with Mark. Like I said, I actually really enjoy getting that perspective from a mobile journalism point of view. Sometimes I forget that not everybody's trying to make a movie with their phone or shoot, you know, a short film or what have you. And there are so many uses for smartphone video, mobile video today. And really, mobile journalism in particular is a great way to use your iPhone or your smartphone, no question about it. I recently had the privilege to be part of the Filmic Pro and Luma Fusion Summit, the Mobile Creator Summit. If you haven't seen that, check it out. We recorded it live, but they have the playback, the recorded version on YouTube and Facebook, I believe. The cool thing about it was they had filmmaking panels, which I was on, but they also had mobile journalism panels. And again, it's just really cool to see how all these different people from all over the world are using their smartphones. And if you want to learn how to use your smartphone, regardless of what you're trying to do, making films or journalism or whatever it is, commercials, promo videos, check out my academy. I have several courses, one on Filmic Pro, the complete guide to Filmic Pro, another more general purpose class on smartphone cinematography, and then I also have a color grading course for using LumaFusion. You can find out more information about these at iPhoneographers.tv. Well, thanks again to Mark for being on the podcast. And thank you guys for listening. I'm Blake Calhoun, and this has been another episode of Almost Professional. And I will look forward to talking to you in the next episode.